And so let me pray as we do that. Father, thank you so much for your word. Um, and Lord, thanks that uh, as we see it, um, actually the psalmist says that it's, it's like a lamp to our feet, uh, a light for our path. And Lord, we're going to think more about light today as well. And so Father, I pray that, uh, that your word would do that for us and in us and through us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'm not recommending that you watch either of these television shows, but if you've seen either of these shows, then you've seen a Genji Cohen show. So if you've seen the show Weeds or seen the show Orange is the New Black, um, you've seen a Genji Cohen show. And she does something very interesting in the TV shows that she has created. What she does is she takes somebody who, in any other TV show, would be like the moral center of that show. So this person would be the upstanding person. They've got it all together. And everyone around them, their lives would be falling apart, but they'd be turning to that person. And what she does with her shows is she takes that person, rips the rug out from under them, and then there's no moral center left in the show. Uh, and so, for example, in the show Weeds, you've got... Um, a kind of a suburban housewife, everything's all together, perfect house, perfect family. Her husband passes away. She's left with tons of debt. She doesn't know what to do, so she does the obvious thing. She becomes a drug dealer. Uh, and <laughs> it is funny. No, it's okay. Uh, and, uh, and so then there are se seasons and seasons of her just spiraling and spiraling and spiraling down into more and more immorality. Or Orange is the New Black, you've got this woman. She's very successful in her career. She's engaged, about to start a family, all these things. And then her past catches up to her. She gets thrown into prison, and her life just spirals down and down and down out of control. And there's nobody left in the show that has a sort of moral center. And so if you think of it, Weeds is sort of uh, what would, it's like the anti-Full House. It's what would happen if Danny Tanner and Uncle Jesse and Uncle Joey became drug dealers instead of wise, loving father figures. That's what the show is. And so, um, again, they, what, they, what these shows that Genji Cohen writes does is she she takes the, the moral center out of the show. So there, there is no moral center now in the show. In effect, what she's doing is she makes you, the viewer, the moral center. And so now you're watching it, and you're having to judge, is this person's actions right or wrong? And so you become the arbiter of that. And, and what's hard about watching them is after only a few episodes, you find out where your own personal moral center is. Uh, because if you're like me... You end up beginning to root for this person to succeed in all their immoral behavior. You want them to get away with it. Uh, you, you want them uh, to succeed. And I don't know if, if Cohen realized this or not, but she created this fascinating social experiment that actually reveals the viewer's true moral code. You find out what you really think about life. Uh, because what she's done is she's not only taken the, the main character and, and put them in the dark, left them in the dark, but she also leaves the viewers in the dark. There's no light. There's no moral center at the center of the show to judge everything by. Now, what we're going to see in today's passage is that everyone actually needs a moral center to live by. In other words, without some sort of light in your life, you will walk around in darkness, stumbling and not knowing where you're going. Uh, but what John shows us is that there is a light that can guide our lives into truth and assurance. Uh, and not just and not just like enough truth and assurance to, to barely scrape by, but as he says in chapter 1, that chapter 1, verse 4, he says he writes this whole letter so that our joy will be complete. With the right thing at the center of our lives, we could actually be filled with joy. And so if there's nothing at the center of a person's life, then, you know, if you're living like a, like a character in a Genji Cohen show, no sort of guiding principle for life, then the things in, in your, basically what that's saying is you're in darkness. The things in your life, you're just kind of floating around and you're in darkness. And so it looks like this, 
first little drawing I've done for you. Um, and, uh, you know, there's all these things, you know, in your life. So there's your relationships, and there's your marriage, and there's your work, and there's your finances, and there's what you do with your body and the urges that you have. And, and all these things, they're, they're just there floating around in the darkness, and you're just stumbling through. And if that's you, if that's how you feel, then what we see in this passage is if you place Jesus at the center, he works like a magnet drawing in and giving life and purpose or to use John's language in, the, in this passage, to bring all the areas of your life into light. And that's the next image there. You have Christ at the center, and like a magnet, he draws them in, into the light towards himself. And so in this passage, John gives us a couple of ways, two ways to, to check if, if you know Christ or not, if he's really the one who's at the center of your life. And then he gives one profound truth to make sure uh, for you to, to know that he's at the center. And so those are our three points. There's two tests, the character test, the social test, and then there's a really profound truth. And so first, let's look at the character test. Look, look again at verse 3, if you still have that open. He says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. And then he goes on in verse 4 to say, if we don't do what God commands, then the truth is not in us. And in verse 5, he says, if we obey God's word, then God's love is made complete in us. So three different ways of basically saying the same thing. And so what's he talking about here? He's talking about obedience. He's talking about character. And what he's ultimately saying is, if you really know God, if he's really at the center of your life, if, if, the, if he's your guiding principle, if he's the light of your life, the test of that, to know if that's true, is your character will be changing. You will move from less obedient to God's word to more obedient to God's word. In other words, God will actually be guiding your life. His words will actually be guiding your life. In all those areas that we talked about, you'll actually start to obey what God says about your relationships, what he says about your finances, about your parenting, about your marriage, about your work, about what you choose to have as entertainment, whether you watch weeds or not, about your possessions, about what you do with your body. And so if God is at the center of your life, then what this passage is saying is actually your character will be changing. Now, what is a person's character? A, a person's character, it's, it's who they are. It's how you act. It's what you say. It's what you think. A person's character is what comes out of you, particularly when no one else is looking or when you're under stress or pressure. And we've used another word here at Christ Church lately to describe character, and it's the word Wisdom. Because remember, what is wisdom? What did we talk about a few weeks ago? Wisdom is persevering in doing what you learned from Jesus. I'll put that another way, persevering in doing what is right, even or especially when it's hard, when the storm comes, remember? When you don't feel like it. And so the person who does that, Jesus says, that person is wise, or, or that person is a person of character. And what John is saying here is that a person who knows God that person will say things, think things, and act in ways that are obedient to what God says in his word, even or especially when it's hard or you don't feel like it. If you know God, that's what's happening. And that's how you'll know, John says. You'll know you know God if you're growing in your character. Well, how then do you know if you're growing in character? Um, way back when I was in high school, I played on the basketball team. 
um, and I was not very good. I sort of made it on the team by the skin of my teeth. And so what I would do every summer is I would go to as many basketball camps to learn the skills and to get better at the game as I possibly could. And one summer, uh, I went to Northern Illinois University's basketball camp. Um, not like a prestigious basketball school or anything, but it was the biggest school nearby. And so I went to their, their camp. And you know, you, you start out, it goes Monday to Saturday, and, and you work really hard all week long. You show up for you know, six, seven, eight hours a day. You're working on your skills. And, and at the end of the week, they gave away several awards on the last day of camp. And so they gave out the best defender award, and they gave out the best scorer award, and they award, and they give out the best rebounder, and the hustle award, and the best award of all, the most valuable player at the whole camp, you know, like 100 kids, who's the most valuable player? I did win an award that week. Uh, but it wasn't best defender. It wasn't best scorer. It most certainly was not the hustle award, because my nickname on the team was the sloth. The award that I won was most improved player. Uh, no, no, don't be impressed. Uh, don't be impressed at all, because that award is really another way of saying, when you showed up on Monday, you were pretty terrible. And by Saturday, you're not as terrible. That's, that's the whole, it's a backhanded compliment, that award. Um, but notice something about the nature of these awards. All the other ones, right, the best scorer, the best defender, the MVP, all of those awards they're given out based on comparison to other players. But most improved was given out on comparison with yourself. You know, which player was better at a certain skill than everyone else? That was the nature of the other awards. But most improved is compared with how was that player different now than when he came in? And the way that we know we're growing in our character, it's like that. Not am I better than another person, but am I more patient, more kind, more humble, less envious, less proud, less easily angered than I was last week, last month, last year? Now look again at verse 3. And do you see where it says the word keep? It says keep his commands there in verse 3. Now the NIV translation that you probably have in front of you if you're using one of our Bibles, it, it kind of smooths this over a little bit for style, but that phrase, it's it's actually repeated three times in three verses. It's the same word for keep each time. And when that word is used in other places in the Bible, it actually has the idea of, of uh, like a long duration of, of persevering. Uh, and so really you could translate it as uh, persevere in God's commands. And the idea, it's actually one we've talked about quite a bit over the last couple of years. It's the idea of a long obedience in the same direction. Think of the kind of obedience John is talking about, like it's, like it's a long journey. And so if the purpose of the journey is to get to your destination, then you're really only obedient to the purpose of the journey if you both stay on the path and keep moving forward in the direction of the destination. And so if you stop, if you go backwards, if you turn right, you turn left, then you're no longer obedient to the purpose of the journey. Also look at verse 5, though. It says, but if anyone obeys, that's the word keep again. So if anyone keeps, if anyone perseveres his word, in other words, his commands, love for God is truly made complete in them. And what John is talking about, once again, is this progression. The word John uses in the original language, it has the idea of completion, of, of perfection, but it's also the idea of fulfillment. And so the picture is that God's love is filled up in you like you're a glass of water put under a faucet. 
And the longer that you stay under the faucet, the more and more filled up with the love of God you get. That's the picture here. But the obedience is the staying under the faucet. And so what John is saying is you know that you know God. You know that he's the center of your life if you stay obedient, if you stay under the faucet, continue to be filled up. And the way that we do that, staying under the faucet, that's our obedience. I'll put that another way. The more we obey God, the more we will both experience his love and we will love him. There's one more word that John uses that gets at this idea of a long obedience, and it's, it's the word live, down in verse 6. That's the word abide, or even better, it's the word remain. And of course, it's the very same word that Jesus used back in John 15 when he said, if a man abides or if a man remains in me, I will abide, I will remain in him, and he will bear much fruit. It's the same word. And along with the language of abiding or remaining, again, the NIV translation smooths this over a little bit too much because in the original language, uh, or if you have the King James or the English Standard, you could actually see this. I'll put that one on the screen for you. Uh, uh, 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, Jesus, walked. And of course, what is walking but a step-by-step progression? And so in all of these, the image of obedience has to do with long-suffering, perseverance. It's the long obedience in the same direction. In other words, stay on the path, stay under the faucet. Um, You know, if you've stopped on the path or turned around on the path or gone right or left, or to use the other image, if you pulled away from the faucet, then that's disobedience. The path is still there. The water is still pouring out of the faucet, but there's some disobedience in your life. And so what John is saying is the test to know if you're in the light, in other words, in fellowship with God, is to see your character is changing. It's developing. But obedience has to come first. Because here's what you'll find. Uh, Your actual character will follow your obedience. So think about it like this. So let's take, take this outside the realm of morality. And so if you want to learn a new skill, so if you want to learn to hit a golf ball or play an instrument or paint a picture or cook a meal, whatever skill it is, it's regular obedience that creates in you the character to be able to do that skill. So we'll just take hitting a golf ball for just as an example. Someone is going to show you the right form. They're going to show you where to put your hands on the club. They're going to show you how far apart your feet should be. They're going to show you where you should stand in distance from the ball. They're going to show you what to do with your head, your arms, how to swing back, how to swing through. And they're going to tell you how to do all of these things. And each of those things that you do is a form of obedience. You're being obedient to the skill set that's being given to you. And your first 10 times of hitting the golf ball, probably your first 100, maybe actually even your first 1,000 times hitting a golf ball, you're going to be disobedient in your form. It just is going to happen. Uh, you know, your hands, your head, your feet, position of you know, where you stand and distance to the ball, all of that, you're going to get something wrong. But the point is, keep obeying the right form. Persevere in practicing the proper form, and eventually hitting a golf ball uh, with all the right form will become second nature to you. And that's the relationship between obedience and character. Obedience is what you're doing each of those first 10, 100,000 times you hit the golf ball. Character is what emerges eventually as obedience to the proper form becomes second nature. And so the reality is you're going to fail at obedience. It's going to happen. 
But what John is saying here is the way to know that you know God is that you keep going in your obedience, correcting your form, and then going again. That's how you know that you know God. That The longer you do that, the more and more obedience to God's word becomes your actual character. It becomes natural to you. It becomes who you are. And so how do you know that you know God? How do you know that you're in fellowship with him? How do you know that you're in the light? You keep on obeying even after you fail. And eventually you find that more and more you're walking as Jesus walked. The more and more filled up with the love of God uh, and love for God you are. So that's the character test. Uh, John then goes on into the next few verses to show us the social test. And the social test is this. If Christ is the center of your life, if he is your moral center, the light of your life, if you're not floating around, stumbling in the darkness uh, in life like a Genji Cohen character, then it will also impact your relationships. Now look again at verse 7. In verse 7 it says, uh, he says, I'm not writing you a new command, it's an old one. And then in verse 8 he says, yet I am writing you a new command. Okay, John, wait a minute, which one is it? Is it an old one or is it a new one? Which one? Um, as John says, actually, it's both. It's an old command in that the command was given to love your neighbor way back in Leviticus 19 in the Old Testament, or it says Leviticus 19.18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so the command to love your neighbor and not hate them, that's an old command. That one's been around for a long time. And yet, in John 13, Jesus said this. John 13, 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And so the command to love is new in the quality that Jesus gave it. So it goes beyond just, just not hating your neighbor. It goes beyond that. Because a follower of Jesus, one who has fellowship with him, one who is in the light, is to love others, not just as you love yourself, but in the same measure as Christ loved you, which is selfless, self-sacrificial, even to the point of death, love. And so the second test has to do with our relationships, how we treat one another. And so how do we know, verse 8, if we're living in this true light that is already shining or in the darkness that is passing? The way that we know that is if we're increasing in our love for others. That's the test. And so in verses 9, 10, and 11, he actually states this both positively and negatively. So negatively in verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister is still in the darkness. And verse 11, he says, anybody who does that, they're in darkness, they walk in darkness, and are blinded by darkness. Uh, then verse 10, he's in the middle of that, he states it positively. He says, anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light. And so there's the test. The way to know if you know God, the way to know if you're in the light, is to look at how you treat others. Do you love others the way that Jesus loves them? And just think about that for a minute. Think about who Jesus loved. He loved those who didn't love him. He loved a humanity that rejected him, that, that turned our backs on him. The real test of love is not that you love those who are lovely, but that you love those who are unlovely. And so we know we're really increasing in our love when we begin to love those for whom it's a stretch that we actually have to reach beyond ourselves to love someone that we don't want to love. 
That's how we know we, we know God. Because that's the extent of the new command. It's to love as Jesus loved. So here's the two tests again. Are you growing in character and obedience to God? That's test number one. Test number two, are you growing in your love for others? Especially those who are for you the hardest in your life to love. And what John is getting at is the answer, to answer no to either of those is actually to diminish your joy. Because remember, he wrote this whole thing so that our joy would be complete. And so if you're feeling a lack of joy, feeling distant from God, feeling dry spiritually, if you're feeling distant from others, John is saying, figure out which of those two things you need to deal with. Which, which of the tests do you need to deal with? Do you need to grow in character and obedience to God, or do you need to grow in love for others? Or maybe it's both. And then lastly, he shows us the way to deal with that then. So he doesn't just put the test out there and say, good luck. He actually shows us what to do with it. And the way to have Jesus Christ at the center of our lives, the way for Jesus, like a magnet, to draw to himself every area of our lives, to bring uh, his light into them, that's point three, and that's the profound truth. And the profound truth is that anyone who knows God, anyone who lives in the light, is united to Christ. And so, so far, the, the imagery of this passage is of light and darkness, you know, being in the light, being in darkness. But there's another image that John has slipped in, and that image is the image of, of union. Now, just scan back through and notice how many times John uses the word in uh, in these few verses. He actually uses it 16 times. I counted it for you. You don't have to. 16 times. But look even more closely at how he uses the word. Verse 5, this is how we know we are in him. Verse 6, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Verse 14, the word of God lives in you. Verse 15, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. And so this profound truth that John has not so subtly slipped in here is union. Now, what is a union? What is union? Well, there's a few ways you can think about it. One is like a marriage. What happens in a marriage? You have a groom, you have a bride, and they, they unite together. And the actual coming together of a bride and a groom in the union of marriage is them unifying in every possible way. They unify spiritually, they unify uni uh, physically, uh, emotionally, material. Everything that was the groom's becomes the bride's, and everything that was the bride's becomes the groom's. And they're united together. Another way to look at it is like adoption. You have, a, you have a, a family, and there's a child that needs a parent, and they bring that child into their home, and everything that belongs to that family now belongs to the child. And all of the things that the child brings in, all of its hurt and all of its pain from, from being, uh, needing to be adopted, they bring that into the family, and, and all of that becomes the family's. Just really tangibly, it's less than a year ago we celebrated joining our two churches together. And when we did that, everything that belonged to Christ Church at Griffith Park now belongs to Christ Church Los Angeles. And everything that belonged to Christ Church Los Angeles now belongs to Christ Church at Griffith Park. Everything unified together is one body, one church. And all those unions what the, is at the very core of them. When two people are united in marriage, when an adopted child is united to their adoptive parents, when two churches join together as one, all that is yours becomes mine. All that is mine becomes yours. That's what a union is. And so what that means is when, Paul, when, 
when John is saying that you are in Christ, that Christ is in you, that his word dwells in you. What that means is that we're united to Christ. Everything that's his becomes ours. Everything that's ours becomes his, which means he becomes our moral center. He becomes our guiding principle. Jesus Christ becomes the magnet drawing together every area of life that was previously floating around in the darkness. Look at this in verse 12. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. What does it mean to have your sins forgiven on account of his name? Well, go back to that first drawing that we had. Think about that. If there is sin in your life in any of these areas, and you don't have Christ at the center, you don't have him as a, as a magnet drawing everything towards himself, the best you can do to try and deal with it is to clean it up yourself. But the language that's used here is like we're stumbling around in the dark. We'll never be able to get to them all. You can try, but you'll, at best you'll end up a legalist with absolutely no access to joy because you'll spend all your time worrying about perfecting each area. The other option is you can just give up. And that's what's so revealing about the Genji Cohen shows is that you watch the characters and they end up just spiraling they, they give up, and they end up spiraling so out of control, you completely lose yourself in the process. But to have your sins forgiven on account of Jesus, on account of his name, is for him like a magnet to draw every area of your life into himself and for his righteousness to overcome every sin in every area of your life. And that's what the other drawing is. It's to be united with Christ, and that's for all that's his to become yours, all that's yours to become his. It's to draw a line from the gospel to every single area of your life. Anywhere that you've been disobedient, anywhere that you've been living in darkness, anywhere that you've been unloving towards others, to be united to Christ is to have his light shine into that area of your life. Put it this way, all your darkness becomes his, and all his light becomes yours. In fact, do you know what happened to Jesus at the cross? Do you know what happened when he died? The sky turned dark. Jesus, he, you know, he was crucified in the morning. He was arrested at night, trial through the middle of the night, nailed to the cross in the morning when the sun was up. And it actually says in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that from noon until three, the point in the day that the sun is at its brightest, it actually says the sky turned dark. In all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it says that uh, darkness covered the land. And do you know what that's a picture of? That when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he took your darkness. All the darkness that is yours became his. And then do you know what it says over in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8? It says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. There's that language again, that union language again. What that's saying is that we are light. We become light by virtue of our union with Christ, by being in Christ, all that is his all the light that is his becomes ours. And so how do you live in the light? How do you find a guiding principle for your life that brings light? John is saying, be in Christ. Let Christ be in you. Be, be united to Christ. Bring your darkness to Christ, and he will bring you his light. In other words, think of all the areas in your life that you feel are in darkness and begin to draw a line from the gospel into those areas. 
And so are you in darkness in you're in darkness in your relationships. And what would it look like to, to think about in your relationships one who, who knows you and yet loves you anyway? Are you in darkness in your, in your finances? Are you struggling there? And what would it look like to apply the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ sacrificed everything. He was willing to give up everything. Are you in darkness in your marriage? What if you connected that to the light of Christ? And to think about that actually the Bible says that the gospel and marriage explain one another. That the picture of a, of a healthy marriage is one where there is self-sacrifice. That's what it is to connect every area of your life to the gospel. Look lastly how John puts it in verses 15 to 17. To have Christ as your center, he says, is to reorder your loves. It's to love God more than you love the world or the things in the world. And this... this this, hopefully, this should blow your mind. It's actually to overcome your lusts. It's to overcome your desires. The things that you can't seem to control. To have Christ at the center of your life is to reorder your loves. So that those aren't the things that you pursue at all costs. Instead, you pursue the love of God at all costs. And so to fully embrace your union with Christ is for him to become your center, to reorder your love so that God is your primary love. And when we can do that, what John says, we're no longer stumbling around in the darkness, we're living in the light. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the light that comes to us through Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would connect ourselves to that light. That in the areas where we know we're living in darkness, where we're disobedient, where we're, uh, we've broken relationships with people, uh, Lord, would, would we bring those things into the light? And Father, would you restore them? And Lord, would you reorder our love in order that we would love you more than we love the world or the things in the world? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.